Good morning, Grace Covenant. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be looking together at a very common passage, um, but maybe from a less common angle, from a less common understanding of what Paul was talking about here. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 17 is what we're going to be addressing today. Ephesians chapter 6, 13 to 17, and you'll recognize that as the armor of God. And so the title of the message today is Complete Armor. And before we get into discussing this rich text here, I'd like everyone to stand with me, if you would, in honor um, of the one who gave us this word. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 17 reads, Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity today to marvel at the riches of Christ. I pray that we will be receptive to the Spirit's work in our lives, that we will understand what this text says to us about what Christ is for us as a church body, um, that we will understand who it is and, and how we stand in Him and who we are in Him. I pray that you will uh, remove any hindrances from me any nerves. Um, I I pray, Lord, that I uh, would be completely dependent upon you and that you would speak your word through me this morning. We glorify you and thank you in all you're doing for us and all your grace for us and that we would have the strength from you to glorify you in all that we do in your holy name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Uh, If you recall from last week, we discussed It's about standing firm, what that looked like, um, what it looked like to have the armor be complete, the panoply, if you remember that word from last week, the complete armor that we saw in Christ, understanding that Paul here in the last few verses that we discussed, verses 10 through 12, um, the unseen war that we are at battle with, that we we don't fight against flesh and blood, uh, but we do fight against the principalities, the powers of the air. Do you guys remember the word cosmocrats? I hope that stuck with you. Um, cosmocrats, the, the authorities of the air, those who have power um, that have been given to them by God for, uh, for working out um, his mercy and grace uh, as opposed to their evil and just all the things that go along with that battle. Now, it makes perfect sense when we think about that battle, because if you remember last week, we thought, man, there's a lot of power that maybe we didn't understand. Maybe we didn't realize that there was this unseen force that has and and has been given a certain amount of authority um, on earth by God. What are we going to do about that? Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging, thankfully. Um, He tells us about all the things that we're up against. It's not flesh and blood. And then in verse 13, he takes up and says, therefore. And as we all know, we have to know what the therefore is there for. Right? And so the therefore is therefore the reason of we know that there is these spiritual forces in the world. We know that there are things that we are up against that we cannot see. 
There are. There simply are. There's no way around that. And so what are we going to do about it? Well, last week we, we discovered that Paul is actually teaching us that Christ is our complete armor. He's our complete armor. He is absolutely everything that we need against this struggle that we cannot see. And so he then goes into elaborate using the epitome of the, the, the day and time that Paul lived in, the epitome there of soldier, battles, battalions, everything was the Roman soldier. That was the height of battle technology, of, of warfare, of technology of those days. And so Paul, being very familiar with Roman soldiers, because remember, at this time, he's on house arrest. He is stuck in his home, and house arrest in those days, there wasn't a fancy ankle monitor um, that you put on and it was wireless and you had to stay within a certain geofence. None of that, right? Those times, the Roman soldiers would actually chain themselves to the prisoner and they would run in shifts. There would be someone actually chained to him or at the very least chained right outside his front door. Um, very, very on guard. There would be at least one soldier, if not more, surrounding him at all times. So he is very familiar with the Roman soldier's outfit. He knows what they're Battle tactics are, he knows what they look like, what their armor is. And so he takes this and combines it with God himself using some of these same analogies. You can write this down, you don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 59, God himself actually says, it's Isaiah 59 verse 17, that God himself puts on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he puts on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. So Paul would be taking this idea of the Roman soldier and this idea of, of God having this breastplate of righteousness. And then he gives us this analogy, this perfect word picture for how we stand against the enemies that we cannot see. Knowing that we have to understand that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, and we need something other than what flesh and blood can supply in order for us to be protected and stand in a sinful world. Has anybody looked around recently and realized that we are in a pretty dark world right now? There's a sinful world, right? There's constant temptations. There's constant battles. God is now being proactively attacked. It's no longer avoided. It is on point and, and up with culture. You are in the right if you're attacking the principles of God's word. That is evident all around us. And so when we think about this need that we have, it is a perfect opportunity. I'm so thankful for this text coming this week because it's a perfect opportunity for us to revel in the majesty of Christ. My ultimate goal for this message today is to flood your mind with Christ to hold up Christ before your eyes that you can see his beauty, his majesty, the care that he takes for us, the different aspects that he provides for us throughout the description of this armor. Because ultimately, as we learned last week, the armor of God is Christ, is it not? The armor of God is not something we can pick up and put on ourselves. It's not something that we have to say special prayers for each different piece of armor. This is not about the individual who has to pray and jump through all kinds of hoops to make sure they're protected in spiritual battle. We are protected in spiritual battle already because of Christ. And that's what Paul was telling us. We're already protected. So let's dig in here together. Before I do, I want to give you just a, a quick quote that I found this week based on this passage. It reads, Confession of our helplessness apart from God must proceed putting on our armor, 
lest our preparations be perceived as righteous works we do that qualify us to resist Satan. That's a big difference than what I think many of us probably were raised on thinking about the armor of God, right? We think about the armor of God as something that I can, I can put on my, I woke up this morning, I put on my helmet of salvation. Well, you didn't save yourself, right? I picked up my, plate of, my breastplate of righteousness. Well, the scriptures say that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so when you start tying in this, this descriptions of the armor that we've all heard for so many years, we have to understand that is not what the text is saying. We can't take the metaphor too far. We have to see what the text is saying in context. So number one, let's look at verse 13. Yes, there are seven points. No, we shouldn't be here for two hours. So there are seven points, but we'll move through them rather quickly. So number one, verse 13, it reads, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. So our first point is able to resist. Verse 13, if you're taking notes, we are able to resist. There's a couple things I want to draw your attention, though. First, is that the full armor of God. Notice in verse 13, he talks about the full armor of God. This is the second time he said it now in a matter of three verses. He says it in verse 11. Now he's repeating again in verse 13. This word in the Greek, if you recall from last week, is panoply. It's complete. The full, complete armor of God. But notice what he says about the armor of God. So that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything. That's a kind of a weird phrase, having done everything. And as I dug in here, because I've always wondered about the wording here, this particular text is telling us, Paul is saying, you already have the armor on. You've already done everything. Not that you can do, but that Christ can do for you. Everything is already done. Redemption is done. Justification is applied. Wrath is abated. Everything is done. What is necessary for you to have the full armor of God is already completed. It's already done. You stand in it because you know it's already done. Paul is speaking in past tense. It's already done. And every aspect of the, the armor that we're going to discuss here one by one, it says having. It's already in past tense. It doesn't say have or go get, or have made, or earn, or any other such language. It is past tense, having done everything. But the point that he's making here is that we are living in evil times. There's been a lot of discussion about what he means by resist in the evil day, but if we look in context of Ephesians as a whole, if you recall back in Ephesians 5, we were there just a few weeks ago together, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, Paul tells us what he means. It reads, Therefore look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Paul is not talking about eschatological language. He's not talking about end times. He's not saying there's going to come a day when you're going to need armor. 
He is saying this time, right now, the days are evil. And if they were evil then, is there a pretty good assumption that they're still evil, if not worse? And so when we understand that we are living in evil times, in evil days, but that we have had everything done for us so that we can be prepared to fight the forces that we cannot see. So let's look at these individual things that we can see placed upon us that we find in Christ, the beauty of Christ. So everything from this moment on in this sermon is going to be focused about Christ because that's what the text focuses on. Because if you remember from last week, we know, again, the armor is only found and seen in union with Christ. So verse 14. Verse 14, it reads, the first portion, we're just going to read the first part together. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. So point number two is Christ is our truth. Christ is our truth. So now that Paul has said we are able to resist, we can stand firm, the evil, it's already been taken care of, we've already been redeemed, you already have Christ, now stand firm, therefore, girding your loins with truth. Now that, as growing up when I was a kid, that word never made sense to me. Never did. Girding your loins doesn't sound very comfortable to me. And when you understand the battle strategies of those times and the dress of those times, it actually begins to make perfect sense. So one of the most important pieces of armor for a soldier in, Roman, in times of Roman battle was their belt. Do you know why? Because the normal attire of a male soldier in those times was a robe ankle length, between knee and ankle length. Have you ever tried to run in a robe? Or ladies, in a dress? Your legs get a little encumbered, don't they? Can you, are you agile? Can you respond? Can you dodge the attacks of the enemy? Are you able to move across the battlefield quickly when your legs are encumbered and wrapped around with a robe? No, of course not. And so when you think about the idea of girding, it was literally this very big, thick belt that they would then take their robe and they would bring it up and they would, some of them, there's different depictions of it you can research. Some of them would cross it a certain way or loop it under and bring, but ultimately they would tuck the excess of their robe into their belt in such a fashion that they could then be mobile and agile to defend themselves, to attack, to run across the battlefield. Now, let's think about that application because Paul here is being very clear. He's applying the Roman armor to what we have in Christ. So when we think about the truth, what does Christ say that he is in the Gospels? You guys remember in the book of John? The truth. He calls himself the truth. Now let me ask you, if we're going to stand in the evil days, if we are going to stand during a time when the evil is abundant, can we be encumbered by the untruth that is around us? Or do we gird ourselves? Do we prepare ourselves? Do we know the truth? Do we understand that Christ is the foundation of everything we are as a body of Christ? That we are sufficiently supplied everything we need in Christ. That everything has to be measured by the truth that is seen in Him and Him alone. And this idea of girding up your loins was something that we see throughout the Scriptures. This is not a brand new idea just with the Romans. In fact, the Passover itself in Exodus 12, 11, the Israelites were told to have your loins girded so that they could be ready to leave Egypt at a drop of a hat. In Luke 12, 35, Christ says to gird your loins and keep your lamps lit. 
Be ready for his return. This idea of being prepared, that's what girding your loins means. Be prepared. Be prepared. Study Christ. That's the application of this point. Study Christ. Do you know your Savior? Do you, can, you, can you sniff out the counterfeits? Do you know when a false gospel is being preached? Do you know when there's a false gospel being taught on the radio or at work? You hear a conversation that says something along the lines of God will make, Jesus will make your life better, come try him out. Is that the truth of what the Bible teaches? Is that what it teaches? No, of course not. In fact, Jesus himself said, take up your cross, deny yourself. They will hate you just as they hated me. Do you see the difference? And so when you know the truth and you're prepared in the truth, you can be agile. I'm not very agile, you can tell. But you can be agile spiritually to, to jump around and get out of the way of these untruths, to stand firm in the evil day, to know who it is that we serve. We have to know the truth because we are fighting against the father of lies. Satan is called the father of lies, isn't he, in Hebrews? And, if, and Christ called him that as well. If we are going to know the roaring lion that seeks to, to, to devour us, if we don't know the truth, if we don't see the beauty of Christ as the pure, ultimate definition of the absolute truth, we will be encumbered and we will fall. And the battle's over. When, you're, when you fall on the ground in a hand-to-hand combat situation, the battle's over. So we have to stand in the truth. Number three. The second part of verse 14 reads this. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Point three is I'm sure you would have guessed and you may be able to figure out where I'm going with each one of these points now. But Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. So when we think about a Roman attire for the, for the military, the armor that they would wear, often it would be a bronze or iron, metal, rounded piece that would go over the, the front and back of the torso. It would be tied together with either leather, or if you had a more expensive piece of armor, it would be connected with mail, chain mail, or a, or a chain, a link. And it would be the, a heavier part of the armor, not the heaviest, but it would be a heavier part of the armor that would also be attached to the belt at the bottom to keep it in place. Because you can imagine jumping with two large brass, that's going to, like, swinging and things, it's going to move around. And so when you think of righteousness, righteousness, the breastplate's job was to cover the organs, the vital organs of the torso of the, of the soldier. Now let me ask you something. You as a believer, would you rather be covered in your most vital areas by your own righteousness or by Christ's? Which is more secure? Which has fewer gaps in it? Christ, right? This isn't talking about us having our own righteousness and protecting ourselves with what we can bring to the table. As I mentioned earlier, Isaiah already calls our righteousness as filthy rags. In other words, the very best that you and I can produce is dirty, filthy rags compared to a holy God. And yet we, in Christ, are clothed with his righteousness. 
the perfection of a holy God that lived a perfect life has been laid upon us. We are viewed as righteous because of Christ. That is a big deal. That is a big impact. We don't trust ourselves. I wouldn't trust my best 15 seconds to protect me from the attacks of the enemy. We must rely on the absolute perfection because Christ is fully righteous in his divinity. We would all agree with that, right? We all know as part of the Trinity, Christ is righteous as divine. He is holy in his Godhead. But then we have to understand that he came and lived a life on earth, putting on humanity, fully God and fully man, and then maintained that perfection, maintained that righteousness as a man being tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. Our vital organs are covered and protected because of Christ and his beautiful righteousness. We have his righteousness. So when Satan tells us we aren't good enough, that you sinned again, you don't have to depend on your own righteousness. You point to the righteousness that you're clothed in. When he attempts to attack you and say, hey, you yelled at your kids for the 17th time this week, when you keep promising yourself that you're not going to lose your temper anymore, do you point to your own righteousness or do you are you covered with Christ's? Understand, I'm not telling you you can earn better armor. What I'm trying to do is point your head to the producer of your armor. Look to Christ. When Satan comes at you with his attacks and says, worship me, what did, what did he do to Christ in Matthew 4? He came and used scripture. Think about that. And we're going to talk about Scripture here in a few minutes. But think about the attacks that Satan comes. He's the father of lies. He's a roaring lion. He attacks, and he cannot hurt your soul. He cannot kill your soul, can he? You are God's. But he can certainly hurt your mind and your thoughts. He can defeat you and make you live. That's Satan's ultimate goal is if I can't have you for eternity, I'm going to make you as pitiful as I can while you're alive. But we get to point him to the righteousness of Christ that we're covered with, not our own. We've stripped off the old man, have we not? Christ has taken that from us and he has made us new. We have been united with him. We have been clothed with his righteousness. Let us look to that, not our own. Number four, verse 15, Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace. Verse 15 reads, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So there's a couple aspects to being shod with peace. So when we think about the gospel of peace, we first need to understand that true peace is found only in the gospel. And that is because God's wrath is no longer upon us. You cannot have true peace in this life when you're at enmity with God. In fact, Philippians 4, 7 says, The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in 
Christ Jesus. Because Romans 3.23 tells us everyone has sinned. Everyone has. Everyone is an enemy of God from birth. And there's no more unpeaceful location. There's no more unpeaceful place to live in. That's not greatest grammar, but we're, yeah, we'll run with it. That is not, there's no more place, there's no other place that you can live on a daily basis and be completely at odds and in chaos than when you're an enemy of a holy God. That is chaos. That is not peace. And yet, Jesus Christ walked this earth in perfect righteousness, sacrificed his life. He laid it down according to the will of his Father. And he took the penalty of the sin that you could not and that I could not. He abated the wrath of a holy God that you and I could not. He gave us the peace that we cannot earn for ourselves. And that's the gospel message. We are at peace with God because of his work in us. Now, how do we stand on that? Think about that for just a second. If your feet are shod, the Roman soldiers in those times did not wear army boots. Okay? They didn't have leather, thick-soled, grippy boots like you would see in the military today. But what they did have was leather, flat leather sandals. And the, what the, the Romans were known for is the soldiers would take nails about a half inch to three quarters of an inch long, and they would drive them in from the top through the shoe, through the sandal, so that they could grip the dirt better. And we're going to talk about why when we get to the phalanx. But to stand firm in the gospel, they would prepare their shoes. They would have them ready. They would have them strapped on. And the straps that would come from these sandals were not what the normal citizen would wear. These would be tied and wrapped around their shin and their calf up to just below their knee so they could have as much strength as they possibly could in their shoes. Because if you think about warfare in those times, think about 200 men lined up and pushing against one another with shields, shoving with all their might. If your shoes slip, where do you go? Down. Where do you find defeat on hand-to-hand -hand combat when you fall? So my question is, are you ready? Are you prepared with the gospel of peace? Do you know your position before a holy God? Because the enemy is going to try to slip you up and make you fall and make your feet unsteady by reminding you and trying to make you think you're still an enemy of God. But you're at peace with the holy God. Is that not the core of the gospel? Has the wrath of God not already been poured out on Christ? This idea of the preparation of the gospel of peace is that we can stand securely, feet securely on the fact that Christ has rectified us with the holy God. He has redeemed us. He has paid the price. The beauty of what Christ has done is our sure foundation upon which we stand. But there's another aspect to this. If you think about the preparation of the gospel of peace, um, Paul was quoting here Isaiah 52, 7, where it says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who proclaims good news, 
who announces peace and proclaims good news of good things, who announces salvation. So he's, he's quoting this loosely from Isaiah 52 as well. And so this brings another aspect of it. So not only can we be girded and confident, or it's not girded, but excuse me, shod and confident and, and sound on the gospel itself that we are at peace, but this idea of being ready and preparation brings another aspect of the military to it. Back then, I think we could probably all know this, but there's no emails. There's no radios. Those have been the military. You depend on communication, right? You depend on communicating with not only those who are make calling the shots, but those who are on the front line. There has to be open communication. Well, there was no other way than verbally talking to someone in those days. You couldn't send things that the Middle East didn't have homing pigeons. Okay, this, this is long before any of that. So the way that they would do this in those days is there would be a runner. And his sole job was to take messages back and forth between the king or whoever was in charge and the front lines. But the really downside to it is in the Roman military, if you brought bad news from the front, you were executed. So if you came and said we were defeated, you weren't allowed to live just because you were the messenger. They would have assumed that everyone would have died and they almost always executed the bearer of bad news. Everybody ever said that? Don't kill the bearer of bad news, right? There's a reason that phrase is around because that was legitimately how that was. And what would happen is you would have these big fortresses and these, these runners would be bringing news and the, the, the people who were watching for the runners could almost always tell the message before the runner got there. Because if you knew you were bringing a bad message, do you think you'd be in a hurry? Would your stride be a little bit different than if you were bringing good news? Of course it would. And then they would, ta they would take that and, and make a phrase, how beautiful are the feet or the pace of the one who's bringing good news over bad news. And so Isaiah is using a, a description in his prophecy of the beauty of those who carry the good news, of those who carry the gospel, the beauty of those who are messengers of peace. So are you ready to give the message of peace when called upon? Are your feet beautiful? Do you carry the message of God with a light-hearted, happy stride? Or do you begrudgingly carry it around? Are we in our battle knowing where we stand in Christ? Are we messengers of peace with beautiful feet? It's something to think about that we are to be at all times ready to give an account of the gospel, the, the, where we place our hope, the peace that we have in Christ. Be ready to show the world the beauty of the one that we are clothed in. Number five, so we'll move on to verse 16. Christ is our shield, verse 16. It says, in addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. All the flaming arrows. So remember, in this context, Paul is writing to us as a church. And so we all have to be shod. We are all shod and covered in a breastplate. And we have the righteousness of Christ. We all are one unit in battle. But the most important piece 
And this is why Paul, if you look, he gives this the most amount of time. He gives it the most elaboration. In no other place on this armor, list of armor, does he tell you what it's designed for. Have you noticed that? Here he says, so you can put out the flaming darts of Satan. No other place does it say that. It doesn't say so that you can stand firm, right? It doesn't say what you can specifically do with each piece of armor. But here he says the shield is for quenching the fiery darts of Satan. This is hands down the most important piece. And I think that's why he uses the analogy of faith. In the Roman world, anybody ever heard of the phalanx before? Anybody? If you're studying military history at all, I'm sure you have. This was Romans tool. This was the secret weapon, if you will, of how they conquered the world. And so what they would do is they would carry, because I want you guys to think of this, because I want this drilled and burned into your mind that we are holding our faith up as shields against the enemy, as one unit. But a phalanx would have a shield. The Roman military would have a shield. It was two foot wide at least. And it was anywhere from four to eight feet tall. And they would be designed in such a way that they were rounded. They weighed about 20 pounds. They would have a spot to put your arm in. And they would be a solid piece of wood with a piece of leather, another piece of wood covered with leather and canvas on top with some, if you were a, a, at a high ranking, you would be able to add more metal or had enough money to, to add onto your shield. You would then have metal over that. And then everyone in the Roman military in a phalanx would stand side by side, shoulder by shoulder, and the ones in front or on the outside would have their shield here, and it would come all the way up to right below their eyes, generally speaking. Maybe a little bit of their feet showing, depending how tall it is. But their shields would actually be designed to interlock. And so they would overlap underneath on this side, over on this side. And so you would have this impenetrable wall of manpower on the front. And then those behind would then have their shield that would come up and they would cover just above the head. So the second row would be in a position like this. And they would be looking out under. And then this would then have row after row. Think of a turtle shell. It would be rounded up, and they would then march slowly as one single unit against the enemy with an impenetrable wall that arrows could not get through, javelins could not get through, spears could not get through, and they would just march. Impenetrable. Unable to be stopped. Fiery arrows would hit the canvas and go out because they couldn't get through the leather. Think of the, the technology in those days. This was the height of military tactics in the days of Paul. And what Paul is saying is that our faith is our shield. Our faith is our shield. Now, you may have heard this preached. You may have, have heard faith taught as something that you can conjure up on your own. That you can come and say, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to have more faith and greater faith. But the faith that this is talking about here is not a, a, a faith that goes up and down. This is the gift of faith. The faith that we have from Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You guys remember back in chapter 2, it reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works that no one may boast. Paul has already said, this is not our faith, this is a gift. Paul has already told us, we have faith because God chose to give us that gift. And how do we protect ourselves from Satan? 
Because the most deadly projectile of those days was things that were on fire. Think about it for just a second. You're in the middle of a hot desert battlefield. You catch fire, you're in trouble. And what they would do is they would take javelins and they would wrap hemp around it and then dip it in tar. Or arrows and they would wrap hemp, dry hemp around it and they would dip it in tar and light it on fire. That stuff burned a long time. It doesn't just go out. And so Paul is explaining that this is the most intense battles, the most intense attacks from our enemy can be put down with our faith. They are extinguished with our faith. Where is your faith placed? Is it in yourself or in Christ? Where is our faith as a body? Is it in ourselves or is it in Christ? Are we going to stand as one unit? And the beautiful thing about the phalanx is if someone went down, they could close the gap or they could protect someone that got injured. If something did happen to get through, they were there to help protect the wounds around them. When you have those days where Satan is sending those fiery darts and your shield is not as high as you would like it to be and they start nicking you and you start telling yourself that you're not good enough, that you have self-doubt and you go, surely I'm not loved by God. I've sinned too much. When you look at yourself and you you want to despair at the, the position that you found yourself in, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. How am I still struggling with this? Maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe I'm not really a follower of Christ. When you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to hatred for your brother and sister, Satan will use these types of attacks to bring you down. But the faith of those around you, the faith of us as a body in Christ, body of Christ, united here locally, we are here to help protect one another and point one another to the faith that we have in Christ. We are one unit, impenetrable to Satan's attacks when we look to the faith that we have in Christ Because in those days, it's been said to drop the shield is to lose the battle. So Paul enjoins believers to stand fast and to keep hold of their shield. Because our saving faith in Christ is the shield that protects us from the accusations of the enemy. If you have to save yourself, I completely understand dropping that shield. If it was dependent upon you, I could completely understand dropping that shield. If God came 99% and you had to come the 1% to agree with him for salvation, I could understand the hesitation and the possibility of dropping that shield. But our faith is in Christ who gave us that faith and we stand firm on what he did, not on what we do. So where does your faith stand? How How hard of a grip do you have on that? None. Christ holds that for you. Your faith is a gift from him. Look to him. Look to what he did so that we can extinguish those darts. Next we have number six, verse 17. Christ is our salvation. It says in the beginning of verse 17, also receive the helmet of salvation. In Latin, we know Christ alone, solus Christus. 
Christ alone. It's one of our five solas, the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation brought us back on a focus of Scripture. Faith alone, in Christ alone, the glory of God alone, by grace alone. And so when we think about salvation, salvation is found in one place and one place only. I'm going to read a a portion of Ephesians chapter 1. We haven't been there in a while, so I want us to be reminded of what Paul has already said in this same letter regarding our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. It reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, transgressions according to the riches of his grace which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in christ things in the heavens and things on the earth in him paul is telling us to protect a vital portion of our bodies, of our body as, as, a, as a whole unit, to protect our heads, knowing that our salvation is in Christ alone. It's in Christ alone. He has already taught that. He's already said that. He introduced the letter explaining that. So we've talked about it multiple times in these points, but I'm going to belabor the point a little bit more because I want us to see the beauty of Christ. Again, my prayer for this sermon is that we see what Christ has done, that we're turning away from our own efforts, that we're turning away from our own deeds, that we're turning away from our own righteousness, and we're looking to Christ because our salvation is in Christ alone. Our righteousness means nothing. Our good deeds means nothing. We have no peace apart from Him. We must stand securely locked in on the fact that salvation is in Christ alone. Number seven. I told you we'd move through it pretty fast. Christ is our offense. Christ is our offense. The last part of verse 17. It says, "In In the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So Christ is our offense. Now you may think, Josh, this says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, which is the Word of God. It doesn't say Jesus. Well, let me ask you, would you have the Spirit were it not for Christ? Would you be indwelt with the Spirit were it not for His sacrifice? Did Christ not teach himself in John 14 to 17 over and over again that he leaves so that the Spirit may come? Not only that, but where does Scripture tell us that the Word of God came from? 
We're going to do a little bit of a, a word study here. All my theology nerds, buckle up. This is fun. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. We, several of us, several of you may be familiar with this passage. 2 Timothy 3.16. It reads, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, I want to draw your attention to the word God-breathed. This is a Greek word that Paul made up. This, is, this word is used nowhere else in Greek culture. I did some research, tried to find, I, I read some quick little excerpts from Greek experts. I'm not a Greek expert, but I tried to see, was this particular text used anywhere else in the Greek world, this, this word, and it's not. This is a word that Paul made up for this exact use, this phrase right here. And it's theonoustos. Theonoustos. Now let's break that word down for just a second. Theo means God. New, which is actually starts with a P, P-N-E-U, new means air or breath. Numos is the word for the Holy Spirit all throughout the New Testament. Numos, numos, depending on what context he's talking about. So when we think about theonoustos, God breathed with the same root word that comes from the Holy Spirit, Paul is talking about a concept with a word he made up that cannot be explained anywhere else in Greek culture or literature throughout history. There is only one way to understand this. One way and one way only. God breathed out. The Holy Spirit is thought of as God's breath. You remember what Christ taught in John 3? The wind goes where it will. The Spirit does the same. The same idea. God breathed out through the Spirit the very words that we are reading today. Now, the, Trinitar the Trinitarian view that we have, that Scripture teaches of the Godhead, we know that God Himself, through working out through the Spirit, gave us this word. We now have the confidence to utilize a sword, which is both a defensive and offensive aspect to it. Can you defend yourself with a sword? Yes. Can you attack with a sword? Yes. So we now have the defensive aspect by the indwelling of the same Spirit that God breathed out His Word, that same Spirit, through a gift from Christ, that's what He taught in John 14 and 17, Christ Himself gave us that Spirit as a gift. In fact, He said, it's better for you that if I go, so that the Spirit can come. It is better for us as believers, instead of having Christ walk into this room, that we are literally indwelt by the Spirit of God Himself. Think of the confidence that we should have in Christ based on that gift. Christ himself said the helper will come. The advocate will come. The paraclete will come. We can defend ourselves with the offense that Christ has provided for us. Because we don't understand this word apart from him. The very fact that we can understand the Word of God is based on the indwelling work of the Spirit within us. 
The very fact that we can know what to say in situations is based on the Spirit. Did you know that, that Christ even taught the disciples? Luke 12, verse 11 and 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. He's teaching his disciples what to do and what to say because they've just said, hey, when we go into a situation, what do we know? How do we stand up? How do we, how do we defend ourselves? And Christ says, no, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour. In other words, when you need it, you will have it. We are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not advocating that you don't read the Scriptures. I'm not advocating that you don't memorize the Scriptures. What I'm saying is, where is our dependence? Is your dependence and in de- in defense on how many chapters of the Bible you've memorized? Or is your dependence on the Spirit, the gift from Christ who saved you? Is your... De- de- um, is your uh, dependence on your theological degree, your understanding of a systematic theology, all good things. But where is your dependence? Where is your offense? Where is your hope? Is your hope in the Spirit giving you the Word of God, the Word of God working its way in your life, understanding it through the work of the Spirit, being given the tools to defend yourself, to go on the offensive, the best description we have, I've already mentioned, is in Matthew chapter 4, when the Spirit led Christ into the desert. The Spirit led Christ, hear that, the Spirit led Christ to where he needed to be, to be tempted and confronted by Satan himself. And what did Satan do? He attacked. He attacked twisting scripture. The father of lies took a truth, twisted it, and, and tempted the very Son of God. And yet, what did Christ do on every occasion? Each temptation, Scripture, utilized correctly. The guidance of the Holy Spirit, knowing Scripture, that's what we depend on. That's the example that we have from our Savior Himself. Do you know why? Because the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is sufficient. It's applicable for all times. There is never a time in human history where the Word of God, since it was handed down and breathed out, has been insufficient. It's been called into question more times than I can count. You look throughout church history. In the last hundred years, there are denominations that are questioning the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. And as soon as they do, they go apostate. I can, I can, I can give you one after the other. It's like a domino effect. The first, thing that, the first thing that goes is the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. When we begin to doubt the Word of God, we fall apart. Our defenses fall and we can no longer stand up to the attacks of the enemy. We must, must, must stand on the Word of God. Scripture, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is used to strengthen our defense against all sorts of schemes 
And at the same time, we are promised that it will cause Satan to flee. And we can see that example from Christ. So as I prepare to conclude, I want to talk about a couple of things from a broad aspect of us as a church. This armor, armor in the day of, of Paul, was not simply about doing battle. That's not all it was used for. I don't want to miss this aspect because I, I know it's an aspect of what he was meaning because of how he's using it. Armor in the day of Paul was also how one was identified and you would know who you were loyal to. Citizenship in Rome, there were many castes, many different striations throughout, stratas throughout the culture. And that different levels of cultural um, living status, there's the word, cultural status would be based on, you would, you would understand who was where based on what they wore. And there's some aspect of that in our culture today, I think. But in those days, it was much more robust and accepted to have this cultural variance. And the armor that a person wore, or the outfit that the person wore, would say, the, based on the color, how they wore it, what medallions, what symbols, would say, I am part of this legion, I have answered to this general, to the Roman Empire and Caesar. Our identity as a body of Christ, by us being clothed in Christ himself, the armor lets those who see us know what, who our identity in is, our identi oof, who our identity is in, and who we are loyal to. There's a reason Christ clothes us with himself, not only because we need it, but we can be identified as his. The word Christian developed in the first and second century literally means little Christs. Little Christs. But secondly, I want us to think through this and each aspect and how that impacts our local body. We are a unit. Our shields of faith are locked into one another, overlapping and protecting those behind us and beside us. Because when someone's faith is rocked individually, we are here to help protect them. Our common need for salvation found in Christ alone protects us from the doubt. We are united together in Christ and his salvation. Our common standard is the sufficiency of the word of God. That is what we base all of our decisions on, is the sufficiency and authority of God's word by the guidance and power of his spirit. Our righteousness is Christ's, for we are robed in it. We as a body of believers are righteous because of Christ. Do not make the mistake of considering yourself better than the person sitting next to you. That is the sin of self-righteousness. Even if there are sins you've put aside that they no longer struggle with, you're simply replacing one sin for another when you look at anyone but Christ. The sin that you gave up, that, that God has delivered you from, gets replaced with self-righteousness. What is the number one sin that Christ accused the religious leaders of his day of? Self-righteousness. Over and over and over again. We know that all this, we know through all of this that Christ himself is the truth. And the truth that we live in and to be ready for battle. Church, Christ gave us 
in himself everything that we need to be armored, everything that we need to be prepared for the battle, everything that we need to stand firm in this evil day has been given to us in Christ. Look to him and rest in him. That's all we need is Christ. Let's not forget that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the sacrifice that you have made for us to clothe us and protect us. For had you not adopted us and changed us, we would still be of our father, the devil, and we would have no defense against him. But you, having first loved us while we were yet sinners, died for us that you might, through your grace, clothe us in your righteousness, in your truth, in your salvation, giving us the gift of your spirit. I pray that we will stand firmly on that gospel foundation and be ready for the battle that's coming this week and going forward in this evil day, but that we will see ourselves as a unit that you have put together by your decree that we might stand in this dark area in this town, in this state, and in this country to, to proclaim the gospel of peace and be prepared to do that. We glorify you and praise you for all you've done in your holy name. Amen.